Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Rishav Thakur, a contributing editor for Borderlines, an online platform run by graduate students that aims to rethink the academic practice of region and area studies by questioning theoretical and disciplinary approaches towards these academic formations. Um, today, we are very excited to hold a virtual space for a conversation between Elizabeth Povinelli and Amit Pursha on topics spanning the Anthropocene, ordinary modes of endurance, and late liberalism. Before we begin proper, let me introduce these two scholars. Elizabeth Povinelli is the Franz Boas Professor of Anthropology and Gender Studies in Columbia University in the city of New York. Her research has focused on developing a critical theory of late settler liberalism that would support an anthropology of the otherwise. This thinking has unfolded across several books, numerous essays, and a 35-year-long collaboration with her indigenous colleagues in North Australia, including most recently, six films they have created as members of the Carabin Film Collective. Amit Bosha is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Oklahoma. He writes about political terror, survival, and the Anthropocene, drawing on film and literature from South Asia. He also translates short stories and novels from Assamese to English, and his translation of Devendranath Acharya's Jangam on the forgotten long march of Indians from Burma during the World War II was released in 2018. As such, both professors Povinelli and Boshar not only transgress disciplinary boundaries and engage seamlessly across anthropology, comparative literature, critical theory, and philosophy in their academic endeavors, but they also work with filmmaking and literary translation in their broad intellectual engagements with the worlds that they care about. Today, Professor Boshar will be posing questions to Elizabeth Povinelli, whose works have influenced his own writing to draw out and think through some of these themes of mutual interest. Um, let us begin then without further ado. The floor is all yours, Professor Wisha. Thank you very much, Rishav. Thanks for inviting me and thanks, of course, to Borderlines for facilitating this. And good to see you, Beth, after so many years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and just as, I, as, I, as Rishav mentioned, uh, uh, your work has, of course, helped me a lot in terms of thinking about questions of endurance and survival uh, in political terror and also in my recent work on the Anthropocene. So I'll begin, uh, first of all, by asking you the sort of broad question, right, which, and then we'll go into more specific ones dealing with your recent, um, with each of your uh, published works. So the broad question would be, like, at the end of, at the beginning, at the end of geontology is you talk about how this book allows you to take stock of your writing as a whole, right? I mean, in some sense, it allows you to look back that there are certain themes that have intensified over the five published books that you have read, that you've written, sorry. So my question would be, is that can we take both a forward-looking direction in terms of your work about how certain themes have developed over time? For instance, in Labor's Lot, you talk about sweat, right? And, the, you know, the sweat in some sense, tying people to place, so to speak, in some ways. And then this comes back again, for instance, in, uh, in economies of abandonment, in geontologies, as you start thinking more about questions about the Anthropocene, about endurance, about survival, but also to take a look sort of back in some ways, how, yeah, you know, you talk about how, for instance, uh, geontologies is a sort of a rewriting of labor's lot 
but in a very different way. So maybe taking the board to look forward and backward in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I often say that I'm writing one book, but it just has very long chapters. Mm -hmm. And so each book takes up a problem that the last one ended with or I, I think ended with like the problem that because I usually drive into a wreck and say this is the wreck we're in mm. right? and it takes me a little while to figure out okay out of that wreck what is the next movement um, and the second uh, uh, very broad way of thinking about the six books five books six books is that all of them although you know i write them they're definitely come out of this particular mind body thing um they come out of an ever longer ever longer conversation with uh an older generation from Bellyun, which is a small indigenous community in the north and then of course with my katabin colleagues and the Katabing come from Bellewin. So we have really literally grown up together. So since we've been doing things since I was 20, since 1984. So my thought is always thinking with them, along, alongside them. Um, and more importantly, my thought comes was really initialized, I guess that's the way to say it, by the generation above me there, so the older men and women, who kind of literally recruited me into my position. And they recruited me into my position, and this has to do with labor thought, they recruited me into the position of an anthropologist because of the position they were in as indigenous subjects within a settler colonial state. And it, it very specifically, they were laboring under a law, the Land Rights Act, that was passed in 1976, that the settler state considered, you know, a landmark act that recognized that indigenous people owned their land and so set up mechanisms by which what they called traditional, state called traditional Aboriginal owners could make a claim, and the language is so screwed up, make a claim to the state for the return of what was already theirs. So it's just, you know, it's a usual circle. We'll come back to that. Um, when I first went to Australia in 84, I was a philosopher, but under this Land Rights Act, Indigenous subjects in Australia have to have all their claims mediated by an anthropologist and a lawyer. So it was that older generation that said, you know, why don't you come back and be our lawyer? They were involved in the claim. And I didn't want to be a lawyer. I never want to be a lawyer. Um, and so they said anthropologist. So, and it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but it, it, I'm trying to like suggest how deeply my thought it has been initialized and deeply my life has been initialized by 
this long conversation with folks at Bellevue. We also, there was also this very, it was, you know, it was a pretty funny conversation because people were very savvy and funny, still are. Um, and when they, I said I didn't know what an anthropologist was when in 84, they, 85 really, they asked me to come back and do it for them. And they said, it's white people studying us. I was like, oh, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was like, seriously? They said, yes, they stutter our culture. I was like, oh, wow, that's wild. What's that? So, because I was in philosophy, I didn't know what that was. And, and I said, that's what you want me to do? And they said, no, we, we want you to help us understand what this, they didn't use the word mechanism, but they said, what, what pedagogy, or, which means white or settler, what they're doing, what is this? And you know, I would say, what is this apparatus of recognition that's descending on us? Let's try and understand this together. We'll help you, you help us. So it's, so it's a deep, my work is not studying them. It's studying alongside everybody with each other. What are the mechanisms? What, what, what's the shape of late liberalism and late settler liberalism? If you're standing alongside my colleagues and staring at it from their lives. Mm -hmm. Oh so, yeah, so a lot of the concepts that have been developed from labor's lot through to the present mm -hmm. come out of that conversation and certainly the a, a broader understanding of the sensory interdependencies and semiotics of the human and more than human world is one of them. Mm -hmm. So sweat mm -hmm. um, and other let me just pick up on something that you said. Um, you said that you know when you first met your colleagues uh, in Australia, yes. in Berlin, uh, you said that you didn't know what an anthropologist was, and they said that it's white people studying us, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> and then, yeah. So spot on, right? <laughs> which, which is you know correct to a large extent, I think. But you know, but the thing that you mentioned, of course, in geontologies at the beginning, is that yes. my uh, it was never about explaining them to others, but it was really looking, my object of study really is late liberalism right. when you look at it from their perspective, right? right? So I'd like to ask you a little bit about this object of study, late liberalism. What exactly do you understand? I mean, how can we understand late liberalism? Of course, you make these distinctions in at the beginning of economies of abandonment, but for our larger audience here today, what exactly is this object called late liberalism? And why not use a term like neoliberalism, let's say? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's a great question. And, and again, I can kind of do the, how, how these books set the stage for rethinking things one after the other. So, so I go over in 84 and 85. Well, by 84 and 85, mm -hmm. in Australia, but also in the broader Anglo, Gas, gas, mm. let's say. The Anglo colonial world, the Americas, right here, et cetera. Um, there had been a shift from, and especially in Australia, since the mid late 70s, a shift from an explicit white nationalism and a, a, a explicit uh, xenophobia relative to Asia. Mm -hmm. um, 
to what they call multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. That is a, a liberal form of the recognition of the worth of difference. Mm -hmm. right. So, and again, I just, I was like a really a classical, like I went to St. John's in Santa Fe, where there was tension between Native Americans, the history of Latinx and Hispanic, and then American white colonialism. But so I go there and, you know, and I'm fully a subject of that emergence in some ways of this liberal form of practice. But I'm not, I'm just like, what is going on here? Right? I'm more in like, what is this? And, and we're, we're working to try and think through the apparatus of a land rights act that was shaped within the politics of recognition. Mm -hmm. So that was what I was doing first. And then I started thinking, wait, what is this? Mm -hmm. like, what? And the cunning of recognition starts trying to think about liberalism as a, in its different periodizations and geographical dispersion. Mm -hmm. So, so I start thinking, okay, first time labor's lot is like, what is the settler state demanding people, indigenous people be in order for them to see them as indigenous? The cunning of recognition expands it out a bit because the first one is more about value and expands out of the national perspective. And I start thinking with everybody, what are they recognizing? What it, and in the process of understanding, trying to understand the mechanisms by which recognition is a strategy by which liberalism re-entrenches its authority rather than gives it up. So this is 2002, I'm thinking about this in clinic. Then I just start thinking, wait a minute, how is this part of a bigger global periodization of liberalism and how would I understand that how Australia fits in that bigger global and that's where I start and I can say why late liberalism at the phrase but mm -hmm. you can put that aside but by I would say the empire of love but definitely economies abandonment mm -hmm. I really dig in and start thinking, okay, so what is happening between the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s? Globally, but in a dispersed geography and in, in a dispersed governmental form. And what's what I see happening, and again, it's not like it happens. It's like, it's, it happens like that. I always wave my hand because it's happening like that, and it's going back, and it's happening like that. Is that the, that that the anti-colonial new social movements, the radical new social movements, the anti-colonial movements, the third world movements, right? Um, uh, Post-colonial theory. Have effectively by, definitely by the 60s, I, I describe it as having ripped the mask off of civilizational liberalism, right? That is that, that very old, well, in some places still, but you know, that older form, like, oh, we're, we're, we're 
smashing the social forms and excavating and extracting all your wealth and redistributing, forging ourselves with it, because that's good for you. Because we give you civilization, right? And, you know, by the 50s, uh, much earlier, but by the 50s and 60s, after that series of false promises, world war after world war, et cetera, it's like, can I swear on this thing? It's like, fuck you. You're just stealing, you know? And it's not like that was the first time people said it, but th th really, it was working. Liberalism could no longer claim that it was ravaging and destroying worlds based on any good, right? So what happens? And that's what I started looking at. That's where late liberalism, so what started happening? Well, late, well liberalism says in terms of, I get to get to neoliberalism, in terms of its cultural logics, does this amazing thing. It's just, what a great trick. And it's what I and my colleagues in FLU and we're in the middle of in 1984. They say, oh my God, we, you're right. We're wrong. We were racist. You know, all, it's like Charles Taylor. All cultures should be, yeah, should be assumed to have some worth if they've been going on for long enough. So you tell us how you fit into the worth of the human difference. And then maybe we'll give you back a little bit of what was yours anyways. A little bit, right? So we see a transformation of civilizational liberalism to recognition liberalism. But both are simply ways in which liberalism is able to re-entrench its authority to rule, to judge, and to decide the differences that matter and don't matter. Originally in Economies of Abandonment, I distinguished late liberalism in its, in its recognition function, in its like, you know, that, that broad kind of, oh, the broad anthropological function of, oh, humans are human in their difference, but not too different, or we will continue to criminalize you, right? So there's always a limit. And I distinguish that from an economic, um, the, the transformations of, of liberal governance relative to the economy. And that's what I call neoliberal. And in Economies and Abandonment, I said, look, the 50s and 60s are where both of these forms start changing. Right? So you get Keynesian, and then you start in the 50s and 60s, depending where you are in the kind of global movement of this, you get the emergence of the, the shift in how liberalism justifies the extraction of work from others from civilization through recognition. And then you get the economic transformation from a kind of Keynesian to a more conservative Keynesian. It's, it was never really Hayekian, because that was, that, you know, nobody could govern it on an actual, just let everyone die. Um, so I start looking at that and I initially I'm saying that I call this late liberalism, call this neoliberalism, you know, by John, by really after, right after I published Economies of Abandonment, I say, you know, look, th this shift in the economy and in the 
politics of the governance and difference, they're, they're all what I'm going to call late liberalism. And how they're related to each other, I don't think they determine each other. I don't think they're, but I don't think they're separate from each other. It's more of a, maybe an Althusserian kind of loose, with a kind of looseness to them that doesn't mean they're detached. Is that too long of a... <laughs> But yeah, so, so now late liberalism is, it refers to a broad periodization of the transformation of the governance of markets and the governance of difference that begins, I would say, in the late 50s and may have been starting to shake in 2008. Now we really see a shaking, right? Whatever's going on now, the the governance of difference and the governance of markets are, are, are morphing in ways we don't quite understand yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I may just briefly interject and ask you, like in terms of, uh, before we go on to the other, uh, some of mm -hmm. the other concepts, but like when you're saying, for instance, it's morphing and mutating now, right? Yeah. How, yeah. how would you probably describe some of the shifts that are happening? Right. I mean, in terms of like you've talked about like classical liberalism as the civilizational discourse, late liberalism as a strategy of governance, which basically in some sense tries to govern the energies released by anti-colonial movements and so on. In this current conjuncture, when liberalism is in crisis, how would you say it's mutating or, or like in, if you were to form a toolkit for that? Yeah, that's one of the things, you know, that, and again, it's how I work. It's like I drive in there and I think, okay, that's as far as I can get. Now I have to sit down and think, what exactly, how is this morphing? And I've been trying to, I mean, I've been watching, and I both watch where I sit with my, you know, my oldest relations and colleagues in Australia, and I, I watch as any social theorist would watch what's going on globally. Um, And you know, I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I have nothing better to say than what any halfway intelligent person would say, which is how, put it this way, when, so Trump's elected, right? And, you know, and there was a, there was a conference that uh, a performance studies professor or, or like a think shop, maybe like that, that he organized down at um, NYU. And, and everyone's just trying to figure out like, what the who? Because by that time we knew it wasn't just, it was a lot of suburban white people. It was, it was educated people. It, you know, it was like, it was, you know, a broader uh, span of, of middle class and upper middle class white people had voted for him. But you couldn't just say it's this small racist mm -hmm. group. It was like, no, it's not that. And and my my thoughts at the time, and they're still my thoughts, because everyone's really angry and you know I'm angry, but my thoughts at the time were that there and there was this this realignment of the far right and the far left that we mm -hmm. saw happening around 
um, a certain kind of populism, not an old kind of populism, but a certain new kind of populism that is defined as anti-global. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways was correct, whether it's the left, far left or the far right. I mean, in some ways they were absolutely correct. And, and I, I am embedded in this. So, so that those folks who are able to treat the, their, their national passporty thing as simply one, I thought of it pneumatic tube. There's one little end of a pneumatic tube. So you go, and then you can go, and you go, and you just shoot through all these pneumatic tubes that crisscross the globe, right? And are completely unaffected by your nationalism as long as you have the money and, you know, and other kinds of social indicators. And and increasingly then there's this whole other population whose trajectories are going down, Mm -hmm. just in terms of class for a moment, Mm -hmm. and they're stuck. They're not able to mnemonic tube everywhere. Mm -hmm. So the rise of a kind of populism in the left and the right as anti-global was correct. It's like those people who can pneumatic to mm-hmm. were the ones that are increasingly winning class-wise mm-hmm. and everyone else is not. Okay. So from a class perspective, and again, I'm a pneumatic too. I, so this impacts me, right? And I think, well, you know, that's, that's right. I don't, I don't feel American. I don't, I have, I'm not nationalist. Mm. You know, and a lot of it comes from my grandfather from the Alps. So it has a longer history. But on top of that, melded into that, and I don't think it's just American, but there's a, a James Baldwin say there's a deep or, or, um, uh, well, certainly James Baldwin. Um, there's a deep American grammar to all this, which is if the class analysis had been the only thing, okay, but it wasn't just class. It was like, wait a minute, we're white, mm. right? And for a long time, whiteness could absorb a lot, like my family was absorbed into whiteness. And that's what will come to the inheritance, that we are absorbed. And now whites, we're feeling like they're being chucked out of this, well, if you have the right skin color, world just dumps in your lap so there was a there's a racial racist component to this and so what we're seeing is a new kind of anti it's it's anti-global which means a new form of nationalism that is not the old form it's not, it can't be fascist because we didn't have globalization i mean it can be fascist, but it's not old fashioned because there wasn't globalization sure and when we return, but now it's like how that they're running into forms of the economy that aren't, so that, yeah. So, so we're seeing the same kind of problem of governance of difference uh-huh. and the governance of markets, neither one are quite working right mm-hmm. or they're working fine, but they're not gonna create the kind of thing we had before. So that that's, those are the, instead of an answer, those are the kind of things I think we need to be looking at. Right? Sure. Those kind of things. Wow. 
if you have time, we'll come back to this question about fascism, which I find very fascinating in terms of its mutations now. But just to go back to your work, um, one uh, one of the key distinctions that comes up in cunning of recognition, I mean, it took me a long time to figure it out myself in my own work, was the distinction between the ontological subject and the genealogical society, right? And on the one hand, you talk about it as a strategy of discipline, right? It's a, it's a strategy of discipline. But what I found very useful in that concept, especially, is this idea of the tense of the other, the fact, the fact that the ontological subject is more about the future perfect, whereas when you say the genealogical society is more about the past perfect. And of course, it comes back in many of the legal cases that you discuss in, in, in cunning of recognition and elsewhere as well. And along with that, you have developed a vocabulary which I found very useful, um, like governance of the prior quasi-event, which of course is a key term in terms of the Anthropocene as well. We'll come back to that later on. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, right? The distinction between the ontological subject and the genealogical society. It's coming from cunning of recognition, but then of course it's again mutating into other works as well. Yeah, yeah. I forgot I had actually started thinking about the ontological subject and genealogical society and cunning because I really develop it in Empire of Love. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but but I began kind of like, what the heck is this? Mm. And again, it comes, it comes from where, you know, it comes from where I, I was taught, which is at the heart of like the, the settler state's governance of indigenous people. And what became very clear mm -hmm. in these land claim cases, but in just the ordinary way in which indigenous subjects, but I would say, Black subjects, subjects of color more generally, are apprehended, both visually seen and, you know, apprehended, like grabbed and held, um, is that they're always, people are always looking in and through them to try and see something that was. Um, and in Australia, it's very clear that what they're trying to see mm -hmm. is what it was like before settlers came. Like, mm -hmm. as a settler, I'm looking to try and see what you were before I came. Mm -hmm. And thus, you, indigenous person, are in the way. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of phenomenon, phenomenology mm -hmm. interesting. Like, like that, you know, talking to lay liberal subjects saying, that's what you're doing. Do you understand that's what you're doing to someone? Mm -hmm. Right? What if, you, what if you were in the way of what someone wanted to see in you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the moment you're born to the moment you die? That is that, that constant measuring and failing so, so that's that subject who was mm -hmm. right in that past perfect sense became in 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 social theory a mass subject. So 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 it was never you in particular. It's your kind. Sure. You're kind people. That's why it, that's why I say autological subject because the liberal subject always singularity 
contained. Mm -hmm. The genealogical society is always the mass subject because you all were the same. You were just one big sameness mm -hmm. whose truth happened, whose truth was right before we arrived mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. into your thing. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's, so that's the basic distinction. One is future oriented, right? And one is half perfect. Um, and frozen, it's rock-like, um, and and it's important because that distinction survives the permutations of liberal form. So in civilizational liberalism, that distinction between the future, liberal, progressive, unfolding, horizontal subject was there, and the genealogical society you know, the, the frozen, you're in the way of what I want to see, which is what we were before, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. but, but it was governed mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a genocidal way. It was like, you have to be destroyed so modernism can go, so the modern world, you're out of time, right? Mm -hmm. So you just need to either be allowed to die or you have to be wiped out. So mm -hmm. time can get back aligned. Mm -hmm. In recognition, in late liberalism, the distinctions still hold, it's just governed differently. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to celebrate that thing that you were, but you're just a bit of a messed up version of it. You see, so for me, the genealogical and the autological subject genealogical society is super interesting for liberalism in general because it subtends the permutations mm -hmm. of how it governs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it just flips. So you like you either kill the genealogical society, celebrate it, but then say to an actual person, you know, you're just a failed version of what we're celebrating. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to follow up on what you said, I mean, the, my reading of your project overall is that it has two dimensions, right? One, of course, is a kind of description and analysis of a mode of power, of the, yeah. the notion of governance of, of which. Oops. Sort of disc description of, of, of um, a, a certain mode of rule, if you may put it that way, right? But there's another way in which you think about it is how people survive in these interstices, right? So in some ways, I go back to the title of the class that I took with you in 2008, which was Recognition, Espionage, and Camouflage. So maybe uh, t tell us a little bit more about espionage and camouflage as modes of being, or, or strategies through which, let's say, people who are abundant, maybe within these pockets of late liberalism, survive. And then I can go on to your refusal of redemption and endurance and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really uh, the, the 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 second aspect of the work that you mentioned is super important, and it's not simply super important to the work, but it's super important to the ongoing nature of really what sits behind all this work, which is you know how together do we you know, as a funny group, mm -hmm. refuse to give way. Mm -hmm. You know, how does 
Parvi refused to give way, just mm -hmm. stubbornly say, no, we're not, mm -hmm. we're not, whatever this, we're not. And so in part, we have to analyze what it is, what's the trick, like, mm -hmm. like what's the trick? And we, like, we're still hunters. Mm -hmm. So we understand that everything is being baited, like, you know, and then we look for the hook. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a tasty worm, but where's the hook? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, there's no hook here at all. There's a hook, right. So, so it's not simply, it's the work is part and parcel. Also, the second aspect, which is part of the work, but it's also the purpose of the work, which is life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in, and, uh, you know, you're very sweet to bring up that class. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot I got <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember it. It helped, helped me a lot. No, of I did too. I did too. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a good great. Class. You got it was a great class. You got through. Yeah. Amazing. So, so in it, it was a class in which I was trying to like and pull, take recognition and pull it out a little bit. How to say? How to um, to give it more dimensions? That's often what I do. We. Sometimes concepts get like they 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 have too many. The function of a concept is to bring things together so that you can see a field that was imminent but not formed or actualized. But then sometimes a concept gets in the way of seeing the field, so you have to pull it apart again and look at it. So so I was trying to think of three dynamics in late liberalism. One was a dominant one from a, from a late liberal governance perspective. One was a dominant one, that's recognition. Mm -hmm. right? And this, the trick of recognition of the law getting it, you to turn toward it as if it was there for you, when it's actually there for its, its I shouldn't say itself because that's abstract, but, but the mechanism are there for the state to re-entrench itself. Mm -hmm. So recognition is a mode of turning refusal toward itself. Mm -hmm. right. and, and once you turn toward it, that's it, it's got you. you know? mm -hmm. Then you're fighting, it does, Rex Edmonds said, you're fighting each other with the settler as the adjudicator. Mm -hmm. and, and they've won at that Espionage was a way of, as the term implies, a way of hiding within this model in order to secret out its strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So you just, it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I, I, I really, really am here to be recognized, but what you're doing is you're like, it's more the, when we get to Homi Baba, it's more of the either strategic essentialism like dietary talks about or a form of mimicry such as Homi Baba talks about. Mm -hmm. um, but the intentionality is to get the plans, the war plans, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, camouflage is 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 a 
so all these are forms of survival, like like not recognition. Recognition, we it's like at least from Potterbing, it's like don't go there. Don't actually bite that worm because it is a hook. Mm-hmm. Don't swallow, spit it out. If you taste that metal, spit it out. Mm-hmm. Um, espionage is a form of survival, uh, and camouflage. It's definitely camouflage is more though. How do you? How do you make your way within this long enough to thicken up what you see as the actual otherwise within the system? And so this might, I'll just kind of pull this out a little bit. One of the, one of the, problems is is that with a kind of otherwise when imminence mm-hmm. and I'll give a concrete example but kind of imminence that's there but not thickened enough to to withstand an assault and I know this sounds like war but it feels like war mm-hmm. it's just constant assault and it might not be at the level of uh, actual bomb but it's straining or something so you have to thicken up and extend enough before your before someone comes in and tries to co-opt you. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And that's what camouflage is. Camouflage is like nothing's happening here. Mm-hmm. Nothing's happening here. As you're deepening and thickening and hard to figure out what it is you actually are doing, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's so imminent you don't quite know yet. Because these are these are in a, a dynamic movement. So say in when the these when this all started and we were trying to figure out what is this what is this land rights act which is operating under this thing we now call recognition, well we don't quite know yet, right? So we have to go spy. Then in spying we see what it is differently, then we hide. Then we spy, then we see what it is, and then we hide. And each kind of movement, people's own understanding and voicing and counter-voicing is enriched and thickened, right? Until you're good and strong enough, when someone comes, you're like, no, right? So the, I was trying to get the more of the dynamic of the flow in all of this. I don't think know if that's what I actually said in the class. Mm. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, but I, I think it's close enough. When we right? did Battle of Algiers, I think that whole discussion definitely came up there, right? So yeah, yeah. But that was, really that was useful in terms of thinking about agency, of survival, questions like that, right? But so, it really is. I mean, I think what's hard for those who have never had to do this is, and it's, it's something that interests Potterbing a lot, mm. especially when in the beginning, it's like, Ideas, my ideas, but I think, you know, counter, counter imminent ideas in general, they don't come full form. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like an irritation in the beginning. It's like, no, something is wrong here, right? Mm-hmm. But what is it, right? Mm-hmm. What is it? Mm-hmm. And if someone comes in, it's like, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's like, you know, it's, it's hard not to just give way to that. So you, you need to have some kind of spacing to go to kind of explore what it is, right? 
and the, and and you know that's that's what we've kind of been doing together for quite a long time in all our differences. So. Uh, before I ask you this, the next question, since we are in the realm of time discipline, are we? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> do we do I, we have an hour left, or would you? Would, would no, you I have don't. Have we have <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be a little bit E.P. Thompsonish, but yeah, okay. Um, I'll move on to something which I found, again, very productive in your work about the refusal of narratives of redemption, both which, of which? narratives okay. of redemption, which you, oh, yeah. you, know, in the, you, you end uh, the introduction of Empire of, uh, Empire of Love with this, that I refuse redemption. And I, I just read out one section for people who may not be very familiar with this, right? That, you know, you say you write that the options presented to people who choose or must live at the end of liberalism's tolerance and capitalism's trickle are often not great options. To pretend that they are is to ignore the actual harms that liberal forms of social tolerance and capital forms of life and wealth extraction produce. To wish for a redemptive narrative, to seek it, is to wish that social experiments fulfill rather than upset given conditions, that they emerge in a form that given conditions recognize as good, and that they comply to a hegemony of love rather than truly challenge its hold over social life. So this is what you wrote, of course, in Empire of Love. It is finds my work. That is, I, I mean, sometimes I, I, I mean, I don't reread my work, but that, that is, I must say, that angry sentence or mm -hmm. paragraph mm -hmm. that defines it all. Mm -hmm. I, I and of course, it's related also to concepts like quasi-event, to concepts like endurance, the fact that you know you live in a durative time without necessarily any beginning or end, right? I mean, in, in many ways, a lot of these concepts. Like hope, hope, they, great hope. Hope's another one. Hope, yeah. like, and and how some people are supposed to give other people hope, mm -hmm. and it's like, well, what is that about? You know, and so mm -hmm. it's a story I tell all the time. But and and the hope one, I was I was at a. I, 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 it was a wonderful event and I was giving sections of economy or something and it was really good. lovely people it was great but you know someone asked me they were like it's, I go after hope mm. go after redemption in empire I go after hope in economies um, and they the, the person in the audience said okay but you might see hope as a liberal strategy of, of maintenance, so the way in which it conserves them. But your colleagues, economy colleagues, they must have hope because they get on the boat. They keep getting on the boat. And it was part of economies is about this boat ride across now. And and, you know, I, I said, I think that's a great question, although I would put it differently. I would say, if not hope, why do they get on the boat? Mm -hmm. Right? If not redemption, mm -hmm. why do people engage in social, alternative social projects? Right? Mm -hmm. And if I, if I rephrase the question that way, then I have an answer that... is a kind of common aspect across Cotterbank, including me, for in different reasons. Um, and I'm gonna say the answer and then I'm gonna 
uh, you know, because I'm always going back and forth. And so I'm going to ask, because now I'm really curious, it's a good question, and see what other people say. And I said, the reason we all keep getting on that boat mm -hmm. is because we're stubborn. Mm -hmm. My white grandfather from the Alps, in this little village, he was an icon, he would say to us, he'd say to me, Elizabeth, you tell them you can kill me, but I'm not going anywhere. And we're like, what? But it was this stubborn refusal to give ground and to be obdurate, to be like a rock. Mm -hmm. Because in fact, liberalism is obdurate in a rock. Mm -hmm. Why don't liberalism give somebody up? They don't want, yeah, it's okay. So it's not like, oh, then let's be, say, being a rock is redemptive. No, it's got its own problem. But that, and I went back and I was, I didn't say what I said. And I asked one of my daughters, Gigi, and she was so funny. She said, stubborn, ain't it? And I was like, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> and then we talked about how it can also be a problem because you get your back up too quick, you know, and then you don't, you don't have enough flexibility. But, but redemption, I very... Empathy, redemption, and hope. Mm -hmm. We have to look at the genealogies of these affects and their deployment in in liberalism. Why do why does liberalism continually desire these affective returns, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and from whom? Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, this would be a good segue into the into this into your intervention into Anthropocene discourse in geontology. I think I mean, in many ways, the way again, I would read uh, the difference between, let's say, someone like you and Dipesh Chakraborty. Obviously, for him, it's about reinventing or inventing a new form of politics, even inventing a new form of the human. I mean, that's what he's been calling for, a new planetary politics. Yeah. There's something which is new. We need to break, so to speak, from what has gone on before. Whereas when I read someone like you, or I read someone like Catherine Yusuf, a million black anthropocene yeah, now, yeah. right? I mean, where I see some of the commonalities between your discourse and Catherine Yusuf's, of course, is to say, for instance, that in many ways, many of these strategies of governance have already existed at these edges, like say settler colonies and so on. It's only becoming more visible on a global scale. I mean, if, in fact, Gionto Power, the whole framework oh. of Gionto Power is precisely that in some ways that it's already there, right? It's not a break. It's been so operating in yeah. the open for a very long time. Long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and when yeah. she writes in Black, Bill and Black Anthropocene yeah. now, I mean, she's precisely talking about, let's say, settler colonialism and even like the after effects of the plantation system and so on, right? And you also talk about that from the standpoint of Australia, for instance. So it seems to me, when you're talking, for instance, about this discourse of the Anthropocene, there is a discourse that says, we need to break with everything that has gone on before. We need to reinvent the wheel altogether again. Whereas uh, scholars like you and yourself are saying that in some ways, it's, a, it's something which has already lied imminent. And maybe even the question of survival might be something that we can actually look otherwise, not the other of the same, but the other of the other, like the, other, other. the, 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 the irigare phrase. Yeah. I just like want to quote one small sentence from the end of geontologies before I pass it on to you, where you say, for instance, 
that you know we hear all around us the coming event the catastrophic imaginary orienting and demanding action the last wave the sixth extinction and yet pulsing through these various terrain is a very different temporality the river becomes a polluted dump the frog fog becomes smog rock formations become computer components and i found that very useful in terms of thinking maybe even about for instance how we can think about some of the questions that the Anthropocene poses that have already been there with us, but never been conceptualized quite in that way. So maybe I'd pass it on to you just to think about uh, this question of the Anthropocene and how you handle it as well. Anyway. Yeah, just a little, just a little question for me to like, sure. move on. For you know, I I, I talk about um, I speak to Depeche's work a little more than in, in the new book, but. I mean, geontology is part of part of what I'm trying to suggest is that there's in there's a there's a scaling up that that mimics a very old liberal civilizational form of governance and. The scaling up is, it says, it transforms, oh, this is now happening to us, mm -hmm. when it was never supposed to happen to us, mm -hmm. right? It was only supposed to be kind of happening to you without any consequence to us. Mm -hmm. It's now happening to us. And when that happens, mm -hmm. suddenly it becomes about all humans. Mm -hmm. So, so in a just a you know just a kind of simple way, we could say that the Earth has been particular spaces in the in the thing we call planetary or the Earth have been radically transformed, species annihilation, human annihilations geographical and like just annihilation upon annihilation since the discovery of the new world mm -hmm. that sorry i can't believe look at it flies out of my mouth since the invasion of native american lands mm -hmm. on the east side of the atlantic mm -hmm. right and the start forcible extraction and enslavement of people in West. Well, you could say, well, that's not a, well, that just happened to certain parts of the globe. It's like, no, it didn't. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen to certain parts of the globe. It happened to all parts of the globe and there were radical collapses everywhere. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't your collapse. Mm -hmm. It was your expansion. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a human problem. The Anthropocene, you see, the Anthropocene becomes a human problem mm -hmm. when it starts happening to specific claims of humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those humans are being taken down too now. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I, like, I'm not a, I'm not liking any of this, mm -hmm. but we have to 
radically rethink the modes by which certain forms of human become the human. Mm. And of course, you know, there's the, there's also, it's, is it the human? Is it a social relation, a capitalist relation? Um, and for Depeche, you know, he's like, he's not really enamored with these forms of time and disciplinarity, right? Especially if you look at his Tanner lectures. And again, I, I love Depeche, but you look at the Tanner lectures and he says, okay, we had these, we had a geological time frame. We had a historical time frame. No, we had a geological time frame, a species time frame, and a historical time frame. Mm -hmm. So three time frames. And each one of these time frames for a very long time had been held, you could hold them in, in very separate spaces. Like geological time didn't touch us, species time was after that, but it didn't touch us. And then there's historical time that touched us. Mm -hmm. And now they're collapsing, and because they're collapsing, we have this new um, historical consciousness mm -hmm. that, and, and again, I just think, who are we talking about? <laughs> I just, you know, I mean, I, my, I mean, I think he would say, and I just haven't spoken to him just lately, but I, I think he would say, well, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Western, I'm mm. talking about Western. Mm. Which are kind of, you know, that flow. Mm. So I'm thinking, this is part of it. It's this this refusal. And this is, you know, this is the best. This is like publicized Europe. So so the 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 imminent otherwise is that which never no, which refused that abstraction, which always looking and saying, saying, look, you're being gorged by the radical extinction of worlds that are happening to me mm -hmm. and and this is going to back up and we, you know we've been saying it forever and now it has now you're saying oh it's global and it's like like or what we also see and i talk about in uh the oncology you see that 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 social space that is suddenly shocked because it's happening to what they did to others happening to them turning to the very people mm -hmm. that whose worlds they destroyed, both you know the human and more than human worlds they destroyed, saying, could you give us your secrets yeah. for how you've been able to endure? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, we've been asked that. Cotter being been asked that. We've been sat there and people have asked like Rex or Gavin, like what in your traditions can help us save the world? Mm -hmm. I said, you're joking me. At some point, I was just not in the mood. And I said, you know what? Mm -hmm. If I was Rex or Gavin and I did have a secret, I wouldn't tell you. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But, you know, people are much nicer than me. But we don't, there is no secret. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What's a secret? Even uh -huh. it's, it's out of the mood. So, so those are the general ways in which, like the, and I think Catherine's work is spot on. I think, you know, Sophia Winter's work is spot on like this. It's, it's, you cannot begin this question without irreducibly placing it in that history of colonialism and the enslavement of worlds. That is the dispossession and displacement and destruction of worlds that 
initialize the European subject. Mm. You cannot start in a new moment. Mm. You cannot start everything is new. No, no, this is not new. Mm -hmm. And we will get no answer, no strategy, if we if we act as if we're in the new moment. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I mean, generally that's where I would call it like the temporality of post-colonial science fiction. Because it's not <laughs> fiction is there in the future, but it is fiction that it always starts from the moment where yeah. the despoilation has happened. I mean, a lot of yeah. people like yeah, Octavia Butler or even N.K. Jemisin, yeah. Are precisely writing from that framework, that temporality. Yeah, it's already happened. Yeah, yeah. it's already it's happened. happened. And it's, like, it's just that the, the rest of the world is catching up a little yeah. too slowly. And that's also that's a part of the stubborn thing. When I was talking to uh, Gigi, I, you know, uh, Cecilia Lewis, to get her full name in there, she's really great and smart. And, um, and she was just like, you know, we were talking more generally about this, that there was a big new neoliberal turn in the mid 2000s and the state was instituting all these new welfare surveillance restrictions and she was just like you know every time every time they come up with a new thing they think we're going to give up but we've been outwitting them for how many years you know and and but but that said it's really hard because as we're working, say, Cotterbank, say, our little group, working to like, and, we're, and it's working, we, we, we redirect all this money that we make out of making films and artwork into bringing, gener you know, we, to thicken us up in the way in which camouflage and espionage are talking about. And it's really actually great. It's working, it's generational, and we, we're not losing anything. We're actually thickening and extending stuff and, and a vision like their vision about how people should have their own land. The basis of that is to stay interconnected and interdependent. So all that's good. But it's also the case that the land itself is, you know, it's radically changing underneath us. Right? And but that's part of the stubbornness. It's like, okay, well, you know, that happens. If you treat the land wrong, then it it goes underground, it changes itself. So you have to just keep you just keep going. You adjust, it adjusts, you adjust, you know. So, so yeah, there you go. But this idea that there's some secret in which, you know, the West can erase what it did mm -hmm. and, and come out clean again, it's like, no. Mm -hmm. oh, no, 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 no. No, <laughs> no redemption. No <laughs> the of the animist, the desert, and the yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, we'll talk about that in detail today because yeah. of the because of the pressures of the clock, as we say, right? Uh, but I'd like to briefly end with two questions. Um, the first one, of course, is could you tell us a little bit more about your work with the Caribbean uh, Collective, both in yeah. terms of your digital work as well as your 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 the documentaries that you've produced and the movies that you've produced it was very interesting to read like uh, when you said that you know there were some continuity errors but we did it like oh, you know okay. we improvised it on the way it yeah. was very fascinating to read that production production yeah, aspect yeah. and the second thing of course the second question that I'd like to end with is your future work the inheritance oh, yeah, 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 yeah. the graphic novel that that is coming out and also you know life and worlds where you talk about this concept of imagination. So we'd like to end probably by talking about these two things. Okay, I can, yeah, the, the Cotterbeam Film Collective emerged. There, there isn't, 
there is no cotter being like now we, you can be born into cotter being. It's great. It's crazy, right? But but cotter being is a is an Emmy angle term and a, and it functions as a concept. It means an Emmy angle when the tide is at its it's gone out and it's about to start coming back in. And um, but as concept, uh, we all settled on it. It was suggested, and then everybody was like, "Yeah, that's right." It's because it it's what connects everyone's country to each other. Because everyone in Cotter Bay, except me, I'm from the Alps, um, share saltwater. They're coastal people, um, and the Cotter Bay film collecting, or the Cotter Bay in general, emerged. And it's great because it's, it emerged as the otherwise to both the governance of late liberalism, that is the governance that separates indigenous subjects according to this anthropological imaginary of the clan that is a sovereign has a boundary, right? And the, neo, the neoliberal state that was set, that said, you know, we're done with recognition. We're just in the market. If you want money, open your land for mining. So Cotabing emerged when this, a group of people were at a really precarious position because they had been dispossessed of, of really of legitimacy in their own community by this land claim act. They were like, oh, you guys aren't the real traditional owners here. Even though they born there, their ceremonies there, everything. Like, no, you're not real. Because again, you're not past perfect. Things have changed, therefore you're not real, therefore you don't belong here. And then this neoliberalism that was like, and if you want any money, you just have to open your land to money. So Cotter being emerged to say, we know where each of our lands are, each of our family lands are, but we refuse to be governed as if they were these sovereign areas because um, we understand they're independent. And the the film stuff came because, well, there, it's a long story, but it, it, the short of it is in this very terrible moment in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, um, that just everybody wanted to push a certain kind of what they saw as the real into public discourse about indigenous and we all decided to do it it was like okay let's just do it and you know no one knew how to do film so, so we made two with uh we'd bring some people over who helped us with craft a little bit and then the last two how many we have it's like seven now the last five we've been just we just do it on our own production process um and they're they're great because they the content of them if someone comes up with an idea and then they're like the group is like 30 to 50 depending on the day and other people just decide whether they want to what role they want to play in it or what how you know what you know they want to just be doing the iphones or holding the sound or whatever and we usually have a day or two in which we do a big kind of shooting around it and then we just shoot everything else whenever whenever something happens we think it will fit in to the basic story 
Um, and they, they're kind of nuts, but they're really great because like in, there's no script. There's a story, like we grew up together. So we, we know the drill. So if someone like, like with our second film, some of the young guys, they said, we want, we want this film to be about how we find deer in the bush and are chased by the police. And then a couple of the older, like a little younger than me, but kind of the older, they're like, we can't just have it be about like young guys getting drunk. So we should put in that you guys are drinking by a, a dreaming sacred site where there's illegal mining. So the police are called because the miners don't want to, you guys, and so and then that happens. And so then the whole thing kind of goes on and the whole thing ends up being, who goes to jail for what kind of stealing, right? And because we all know each other, we know how this works, that bare kind of minimal plot, we don't need a script. Everyone just comes up with their own lines and how they're gonna act it out and we just go forward, you know? So, so and so that, and it's, fun and every film has to weave as it's our principle you have to weave some aspect of an older story into it it could be at several layers historical dreaming all of them kind of like going like this and so that what they're doing is functioning as a kind of school as a memory extender as a as a like yeah i know what this is now i acted it out and the country can feel you remembering and acting out so it strengthens the country in relation to you it also is a big financial and capital redirection mm -hmm. because since we now do them on iphones and by this time we've all kind of learned how to do this i've definitely learned how to edit um we skim off the money that accumulates around this kind of body right and i use that to we use that to make the films so, you know, how much it costs. And then the money we make from the film, we redirect into land-based stuff. So we buy boats and cars and trucks and all kinds of stuff. And get kids and us back and forth. So, so it's also anti-capitalist machine. Mm -hmm. And it means they can travel. So they, you know, they've been in MoMA, they've been in Tate, they've been to Manila, they've been to China. They've been, so they that we go everywhere and as they go everywhere, again, espionage, camouflage, recognition, there's a deepening of everyone's understanding and then everyone's opinion and then the conversation about what's happening gets thickened up amongst us. Um, and then that leads to more. So it's this great machinery that in part is about filmmaking, but really is about this, this much broader social analytic project mm. that stretched all the way back. Guys. To, you know, have you screened those movies somewhere? I mean, I see that on your Facebook page from time to time, but have you screened the movies yeah. elsewhere, like outside Australia or yeah. in, in the US and elsewhere? Yeah. yeah. So, say what? I was, I was like, have you screened those movies elsewhere? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're everywhere. Yeah, I see. I see. No, no. I mean, they're not everywhere. We actually keep them behind a, a wall. So if you want to see him, you have to ask permission. But yeah, okay. they're, no, no, no. We, we've been very lucky. We've been, 
we're in galleries, we're in film, but right now we're in the Melbourne Film Festival again with the most recent one, which is, I was, we were doing an interview last night for the ABC in Australia and they asked what genre it was. I myself, we say our genre is Potter being genre, but it's kind of like a hip hop ballad and it just follows different characters as they go around the kind of ordinary thing Mm. in which nothing quite works because there's this level of governmental corruption and ordinary, it's kind of, look at the economies of abandonment. Sure. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, the, the, the inheritance is, the inheritance is in some ways a very simple little story. And it, 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 it's a, it's about where, when, what we think inheritance is. The, the punchline is that inheritance is not something that's in the past. Mm -hmm. And instead inheritance is the infrastructures by which bodies are separated, differentiated, some elevated, and some mm. disenfranchised. Um, but it's that kind of simple point is told. It's a it's told as a story, and this and it it it's based on the little Elizabeth, who's like between like two and seven, mm -hmm. who. He's growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana mm -hmm. from 1964. Kind of, it's kind of till I'm like nine-ish, let's say. So 64 to whatever that would be, 73, 74. Um, who in her house is a framed kind of size of this. I see. A framed, yeah, it's about that size. A uh -huh. framed image of kind of these blurred lines that all her relatives stand in front of and argue about. And in every one of her relatives' house, and all her relatives are up north in Buffalo, everyone has the same image. Mm -hmm. Everyone sits in front and argues about it. And, and the images of the area uh, in Trentino, mm -hmm. in which are my patrilineal villages, Corzol, and the argument is that Corzol is Corzol, is Austrian Hungarian Empire, is it um, Italy? Mm. And so the story is about the, the, the damage that was passed down, if you want, the kind of psychic damage that was passed down, and the violence that was passed down as my Pognelli clan. So they have clans up there on the Simonots Pognelli. So as our clan leaves this frontier area during the First World War when it's Waterhouse, goes to Buffalo to Knife Grinders, and then we end up in Freeport. My mm -hmm. father's uh, was raised. So it starts as like this this unclosable space. Like you think, oh we're so lucky, we know where we come from. It's not even general, it's like specific. <laughs> but it, the closer you get, the more it breaks apart because no one can agree on what it is, what it means, or what it did. 
But then the book turns and says, you know, well, let's get real. Let's talk about who mattered and who didn't matter in the place I actually grew up. Not this thing that we have, but in Shreveport, in 1964 when the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were being passed, but the schools were being resegregated, there was still like rampant, you know, there still is. And there it was like, you know, we had George Wallace who was winning. He won like five states when I grew up. We had, you know, it was just, I was in the Bible Belt where, so it's, 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 it's an analysis of how we think about inheritance as an infrastructure of the present. And it, it, it's a kind of prequel to everything that happens in Australia. So that if you know my work in Australia, then you can, you can kind of see why when I went there it was like, it's like we, not to use this terrible word, but we really deeply, it's like, oh, you guys, like me, I was like, oh, we, yeah, but we, we have clans too. And they're like, no, you're white. You can't have clans. I was like, no, really. I'm a Simonot Povinelli, and there's another kind of Povinelli, and we only married, because we married, like, you know, not anymore, but like in Broses, Marinellas, and the hall. And, and up there, you know, it's, people don't consider themselves, like, they're a frontier. So it's like, there was the Austrian Hungarian Empire, before that, the Roman Empire, and the Italian nation. But there's this way in which you're colonized, but you're not, you don't lose your identity in the country. We're still Corzo Corzo. And that was so much like what they were, they were like, yeah, we're from Malbula, but we're from Bonagaya, Bonacula. Now the Australians say, but there's still Bonagaya, Bonacula, we're still Emmy, right? Mm -hmm. this, the, this imposition of a nation state doesn't, can't obliterate. And yet, with all this, and I grew up in the woods, we grew up hunting, I come from my household very finely, you know, I'm very comfortable with all these things. So there was a lot of resonance. So what made my life so different? <laughs> White supremacy made my life different, right? Uh -huh. And so it become, you know, that become, that was also for me, what started all these books, what started all this thought was, was really, and you know, it's, it's not like I, I should have seen this, but really confronting this in a deep way when I got to Australia, which means how brain dead really I was. Even though, I, you know, I see it, I'm in it, but we were so, the inheritance, like, you can be so wrapped up in your own family tragedy, right? And it's like, that's my inheritance, my family. It's like, oh, bullshit. I mean, it's a very sad story. Very compelling. It, I still cry at times in it. There's a sound cue for doing it. But that kind of self-absorbedness, right, has to be ripped away. It's just like, fuck that, you know? Absent of all this kind of crazy stuff about the Alps and our heritage, like, strip it all away. And you know what it was? A white girl being elevated by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter that I have a clan, that I have a village, that, you know, I was on a frontier. I come from a frontier too. I come, my family was slaughtered by various empires too, blah, 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 blah. Nevertheless, the infrastructures of whiteness in America, man, woo, I go up. 
as other people are being held down. And that's what the book's about. But well, it's told in a story. It's just a really nice story. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading that. And you've given Thank me you. a cue to reading it as well before I turn it over to Risha. Okay. It's like a prequel. So I think I'll read it more like the Star Wars stuff, right? Like I read it with the last movie and then I'll work it out with the first one. So thank you very much, Ben. This was lovely talking to you. And, and you know, thank you so much for doing this. You were so generous and like brilliant. Uh, like you read stuff. I was like, wow, I never even saw that in me. So, you know. Well, hopefully we won't wait 12, 12 years to yeah. see each other face to face again. It was 12 years. <laughs> Thanks a lot, like both of you, for this great conversation on behalf of Borderlines. Um, yeah, and it's really, I guess, like it's going to give like people a lot of food for thought 